rather busy. Now he's going to move like right along to McGregor. That's his whole life. You know. All right, so at the end of last week's episode of Tuning In, I said that Unusual Suspects is one of my favorite episodes of The X-Files. Well, to be fair, you said that one of these episodes. I thought it was Detour for a few minutes. Ah, well, that is true. Good good catch. But it was Unusual Suspects. That is one of my favorite episodes of the show. I am a Lone Gunman fan. And Richard, I think, was kind of not. And I think well, he started to come around on them. But but I'm curious to see how you felt about this episode. No, I agree with you. In their first uh, appearance, the only reason I noticed them was because I know the Lone Gunmen are a thing. I know, you know, they, they were really popular side characters from them. Um, in their initial episode, I, I, I it was very much a case of... You know, they hadn't quite figured out who these characters were. The actors had, you know, they were supposed, they were probably just going to be a one-shot appearance, and then everybody was just like, oh, there were, you know, there was something there. These could actually be developed, and they have developed into really good characters. It's always kind of fun to see them again. I really like their role in the show, Um, and... I didn't know or expect a Lone Gunman origin story, so to speak, and it's... I mean, it's a very charming episode. Like, this is adorable. Um, well, and I, I want to talk a little bit about the genesis of how this episode came about. Yeah. Because, because I think it's interesting for, for a couple of reasons. So, obviously, this is a very uh, Mulder and, and Scully light episode. Yeah. Scully does not appear in it at all, which which makes sense. And, and Mulder appears in it very briefly. And and the reason for this is, is very fascinating because you know that we have uh, the first X-Files movie coming up um, in the chronology at the end of the fifth season. So we're going to be covering that in about two months. But interestingly, they didn't film it then. They actually filmed it between the fourth and the fifth season. Okay. So... By the time that's, this is aired, it's, they've wrapped shooting. Well, that's part of the reason why this episode is so light on Mulder and Scully, because they still had to finish shooting the movie. I think they had pickup shots or something they had to do or coverage. And so this is where this genesis came from, where they needed this Mulder and Scully light episode. And I don't know if it, I don't think if Vince Gilligan actually came up with the idea of a lone gunman origin story, but he's the one who wrote the episode, obviously. And so I think it's interesting for that reason because it's it's completely an accident this episode even exists. And some of the best episodes of The X-Files happen that way. Yeah, well, I was going to say, we've talked a lot about accidents just leading into larger stuff. Again, uh, Gillian Anderson's pregnancy being a very lo- – you know, being the most obvious one. But, you know, it, again, there is an improvisational feel to it that they kind of – I mean, they need to have an episode over. We've got, you know, certain restrictions. We've got to do this. And from there is born really interesting things or just a weird take on it. Again, X-Files is not a show that is unwilling to take risks. I mean, it's, it's you know, one of the reasons I, I, I sometimes find it weird to call the show a procedural is because of how formula procedurals are. procedurals are. Like... Every Law and Order episode is the same Law and Order episode. There are no formal risks taken. There is no, and you know, X Files starts off, I guess, in that, but it's very, very quickly doesn't is not really interested in staying in that wheelhouse. 
No, it's not at all. And I, I think that's so fascinating as to why an episode like Unusual Suspects exists. Because, you know, we're going to talk about an episode next week that is very, very formally experimental. It's probably, um, I think, one of the most formally experimental episodes of the show so far. And, and you'll see what that's about next week. But in, in, in terms of this episode, I also think that it's interesting to look at this episode in that light as well. Because, yeah, you're right. Like, the X-Files very much started out as a procedural. The first season was pretty much every single episode was in the style of a procedural. And the show very quickly either outgrew that or, or became disinterested in that. And an episode like Unusual Suspects is is very different from a standard quote-unquote X-Files episode, but it's also not very sort of like, you know, it's not experimental in the way that a lot of the the non-procedural episodes are seen as. Yeah, it's not the field where I died. It is a, I mean, in many ways, this is a light comedy episode in some ways. It's a very accessible, it's a very, you know, broad episode it's very easy episode to watch and understand it's not artsy in that way and it's an episode that that you could very easily watch as a sort of a short story uh you know a short film without actually even knowing who any of these characters are i mean obviously you know the appearance of axe deeper throat you know the appearance of mold or stuff like that you know if you don't know who the lone gunman are you may not get as much enjoyment out of it but you certainly could watch this and and never see any of the other x-files episodes and knowing who you know the view of Deeper Throat in it is pretty much uh, Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction, which, you know, again, was around this time. You know, it, 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 it's even if we don't know exactly who he will become and what he's done, his role is very archetypal in this episode. I mean, that that that's the, the, the conspiracy. Again, it's another X-Files conspiracy that doesn't really make any sense and doesn't really have anything to do with anything. Conspiracy as MacGuffin, but it hits every note of the paranoid anti-government conspiracy no it certainly does and i i mean i mean i guess i'll just ask you this outright which is is this a surprising origin for the lone gunman did you think it was going to be more conspiracy-ish i guess i mean like we've got uh uh you know the the bearded guy whose name i don't remember um myers yeah myers um who worked for the FCC and then we've got Fro Hickey and uh the other guy I can't remember their names I'm really uh drawing a blank today but Fro Hickey and the, and the blonde guy you know they're basically just like you know minor hackers that are making money selling devices to to you know get free cable to unscramble the cable and you know you think like oh well the lone gunmen are going to have this like really amazing origin story and they they kind of don't which I I, I love actually I mean yeah, it, it made a lot of sense. These are just three kind of weird guys who are kind of on the fringes of society, and they have an experience which pushes them even close, even further out to the fringe. Well, I mean, I, I, I think that that's a little bit of a misreading. I mean, certainly Fro Hickey and uh, the other guy are, are on the fringes of society, but I don't know that I would necessarily say that Myers yeah, is. That's, I mean, he, that's fair, but, you know, at the same time, it's not like he's anybody important. He is a minor official at the FCC. You know, this is not the upper echelons of power. This is a, you know, civil service desk job for the most part, and sometimes he gets to go on conventions it's not like he's somebody who probably has a lot of friends you know again he he is still a white man in america who has a good job that's paying his rent like let's 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 not say that he's the most subaltern but he is you know not the most again if it 
do you know you know what I'm saying with this? You know where I'm going with kind this? Kind of. But I I mean yeah. I, I don't want to misread the the character as saying like he was into conspiracies before this because he No, wasn't. no, no, in no way. You can be a bit of an outsider, you know, you can, these guys are nerds in 1989. So again, they are, they are able to make money from their intellect and stuff, but they are, you know, you know, put it this way, Byers' entire thing is, uh, spurred on by the fact that there is a pretty lady who's paying attention to him. I mean, that's, this is not something that is common for them. They are not the most, you know, popular social people. You know, one of them is playing D and D gambling ring. Yeah, and I'm um, glad you brought that up because I mean, I, I I think there's a couple different ways to to go with this conversation. And there's you know the I don't know if it's sort of like the the naivete of these characters and and how they very quickly buy into this conspiracy, or is it Vince Gilligan and how he constructs this episode? Because I you know we we sort of were on I guess. You were a little more unimpressed with Vince Gilligan early on in the show, and I, I think he's really turned a corner and he's really started to construct yeah. really good episodes of the show. And I think that you see a lot in of a his way, fingerprints yeah. all over Unusual Suspects. In a way, he and the Lone Gunman had a very similar uh, effect on me. Like, I started off like, wait, why is this going to be such a thing? And by now, I completely get both of it. Yeah, because, I mean, with, with him... His, you know, his episodes always have this very sort of like sardonic humor to them. And this episode isn't, I think, as as sort of darkly funny as a lot of the other ones. But there are moments of humor in there. I think that, you know, you think they're playing poker or something else and they're actually playing D&D, <laughs> which is a wonderful little uh, character beat. And I think that Fro Hickey being, you know, even more of a creep than he usually is, is, is nice as well. Um, I, I always think of his line, baby, don't worry, my kung fu is the best or something like that. It's just <laughs> so, like, gross. And But it, it makes sense. And, and, then la- yeah, and then later he has to, you know, say to the blonde dude, uh, you know, you have better kung fu than I or whatever. Yeah. I respect your kung fu. Like, <laughs> Which I was reading, actually, Vince Gilligan, like, went to hackers to, like, get some of the language right because that's <laughs> something that hackers actually say. I don't know if they say it anymore, but they, they said it uh, back probably then. Probably not. Yeah. For reasons reasons like this but but um, and then the other part of it too of course which i find fascinating is that there is a real core of the fact that suzanne medeski is just smarter than these guys i mean you know here here we have a character who and this could not work right this could all fall apart very easily because this is in a sense the origin story not only of the lone gunman of of, of, but of Mulder's interest in the x-files because You know, if you place Mulder in a context with this episode, this is 1989. This is four years before Scully joined him on the X-Files, but but he had been on the X-Files, I think, for a year or two before that. And so this is kind of his origin story in terms of finding interest in this conspiracy and then finding the X-Files and getting yeah. interested in this and sort of torpedoing his career in a way. And yeah, this is him at his peak as the as a criminal profiler, as somebody who finds, you know, serial killers and stuff. Um you know, he is about his nickname Spooky is about to take a turn now. It's- yeah, exactly, because I think that it's interesting to link you know, the the origin story of yeah. the Mulder we know with the origin story of the lone gunman. It puts both of them in a very interesting context, and I think it changes the way that you look at Mulder and the lone gunman's relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that, like, there is, it is kind of a running joke that anytime anybody says, you know, there's a conspiracy in the government, they very, like, 
gee golly, the government, but they wouldn't be bad to us. Like I think, uh, you know, Mulder, you know, Mulder saying it at the end is hilarious because again, but, and, uh, again, it's, you say they may be naive to be buying into all of this conspiracy so easily, but I don't know. They, 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 Again, there is a naivete to this. I I wonder if it has something to do with, and this is an X Files thing, the fact that this is a narrated story. I mean, again, there 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 are plenty of times that the the show has explicitly told us to call into question when a character is telling a story, whether that was uh, 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 Jose Chung's from Outer Space, or whether it's something as weird as Amundahira. Part of the, you know, this entire thing is uh, buyers telling the cop what happened. And so there is an amount of things falling into place in a way that I think can just be explained by this is a narrative. You know, if he seems a little more wide-eyed than he was, this is from somebody who has a bit of almost contempt for himself two days ago. You know, I was such a dumb kid back then. How did I even think about this? Yeah, no, I I think that's right. And and certainly I'm not trying to argue that the conspiracy in this episode isn't real. I mean, obviously it is. And, but, but I think it's interesting that you bring up the, the sort of unreliable narrator aspect of this episode, because I think that Myers is supposed, I think we're supposed to read those scenes as Myers telling detective Munch the truth quote unquote or, yeah. or his version of the truth. I don't think that he's lying yeah. or embellishing or anything like that. And, and and I think that he's making himself look pretty bad. Now, you know, certainly I don't know how to read scenes in that context like Myers and Sudan, Suzanne Medeski's first meeting at the table, you know, where she's telling him this elaborate sob story about how uh, the FBI agent who used to be her boyfriend, her abusive boyfriend, you know, stole her three-year-old child and her name yeah. is Suzanne Medeski and, oh, my name is Holly. And then you pan down and you look at the, um, you know, sugar packet. And he says, oh, like the yeah. sugar, you know, and you're like, really, you're that stupid? And, you know, then, of course, to, to cap that all off, when he's not looking at her, she looks away and like rolls her eyes at him. And uh-huh. so... It, it's, well, I mean, that is a riff on the the movie The Usual Suspects, obviously. Yeah, obviously uh, it is. But like at, but, at the same time, it's it's interesting that the episode is, is playing that up because yeah. Myers is telling that story. <laughs> yeah, no, um, you could tell the truth while still telling a story about either the best possible version of yourself, which is how most narratives go, or the worst possible version of yourself, which is, again – Somebody who is in jail who two days ago was a – again, had a pretty decent job and is now, you know, completely fucked all of that is going to have a particular bias towards himself in that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then I also think that to kind of move away from that for a minute, I, I think that in terms of an origin story for the lone gunman, I think it kind of has to be this – cliche of a conspiracy story it kind of has to be this terrible i mean they have to witness suzanne medesky you know being ushered into that car and you know x deeper throat like glaring at them menacingly as he drives away (laughs) they kind of look off and they're like oh my god this is terrible we need to do something i mean you can kind of see like we're going to create a newspaper and we're going to call it the lone gunman you know they get their name in the episode it's just it, it 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 does like it could so easily not work but 
it just does because of how Vince Gilligan knows how to, I think, lay lay on the button of comedy and then back off from that. You know, he, he puts the gas on. He doesn't put, you know what I mean? It's like he puts the brakes yeah. on. He knows how to flow this episode very nicely. And it does have a lot of like tonal shifts, but but they all work because it, it, in a sense, it, it, it almost, I mean, I don't think this would work if this was a Mulder and Scully story at all. It no. makes sense and it works for a lone gunman story. Although here's the thing. We have uh we have just come off of a three part mythology uh mini mini series that's dealing very heavily with the nature of truth as it relates to the conspiracy and that suppose you know, maybe or maybe not, but the idea is in in play that all of the alien stuff was faked, so that way People say, oh, God, you know, kooks who think about aliens, you know, that's weird. And that distracts people from the reality of what is actually going on in the government. Or, as is more likely the case, the amount of, you know, every time a crazy person talks about aliens, you know, a real alien sighting is just going to be lost in that shuffle. And, you know, in other words, they, they put a lot of fake alien sightings out there to smokescreen the real ones. In Unusual Suspects, we see the creation of a group of people who are cranks who talk about government conspiracies and stuff and give government conspiracies that wacky tenor that they have. These are, you know, like, for example, the, the I love the scene when she's talking about what's going on with the conspiracy and why all this has happened, and then she moves to Bibles. Right, and right. It is this, you know, and that's even one of the things that, like, I think – when they're telling the story to Mulder at the end, you know, they pro Hickey's like, oh, be sure to tell him about the Bibles. You know, the idea that a Bible has listening devices to it because nobody questions the Bible is so ridiculous. Again, puts this in the realm of wackiness. But, you know, she also says that in the context of other conspiracies that are well within the wheelhouse of this show yeah and that we assume are probably true and aren't that different from what we've seen so is the bible thing real is that just because there is this really weird turn in her monologue where it's getting you know tenser and tenser and tenser and then she takes the mentions the bible's thing and suddenly it flips around and oh she's just kind of a rambly conspiracy nut oh god but you, <laughs> you know, know I, none of this is real i mean i agree with you but i also think and, and this is going to be a, a fine line to walk so so i'll have to be careful yeah. here but i i think that i wonder how much of that is actually her being like a rambling conspiracy nut and how much of that is her frankly being a pretty woman who is very intelligent and is able to read the room and is able to see like and judge what they would react to I, you know because how would she even know that is kind of a question in my mind like she no, worked at this fair. she worked at this research facility and yes she knows about the hallucinogenic gas that they're going to put into asthma inhalers and you know give to children or whatever but how would she know about the Bible thing? Like she might just be totally making that up. And I think So that, in other words, she is this it's the spoonful of sugar to go with the medicine. Right. Like I think that she realizes that these guys are, you know, yeah. they're they're more primed to believe all this sort of like governmental conspiracy stuff because she's already given them evidence of it. And so she's kind of piling that on more and more. And, you know, I think that there's a really interesting through line to this episode, which is that, you know, 
and it's a hard line to walk because I think that using, uh, you know, an attractive woman who was using her feminine wiles, you know, quote unquote, which don't exist, but you know what I mean, um, to kind of get what she wants from stupid men could very easily be sexist. And I don't think this, I think this episode avoids that, but I just have to call it out because it's such an interesting thing to do. Yeah, I get what you mean. There is this show is a product of its time in a lot of ways and I think there was I mean this seems to dovetail into the version of girl power feminism that was around at the time which uh I think did seem to you know to view that you know, a woman using her feminine wiles, that's okay, that's a positive thing in a way, because, you know, she's the one in the control of the situation. I think that is part of how that might have been read. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, it's certainly, while girl power feminism had certain, you know, positives to it, again, it was a product of its time, it did have certain limitations as a form of feminism, but... Absolutely, yeah, because we're we're only... That was a strain in the world at the time. Yeah, no, absolutely, because, I mean, this episode aired, I think, in November of of uh, of 1997. We're only a couple months away from the premiere of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, for instance. We've got the Spice Girls very popular, like these kind of things. Yeah, and and certainly I think that there's a... I mean, I don't want to go too far down a road of talking about that, because it's a little far afield of the episode, but I do think there was an atmosphere of that in the air, of course, as well, which, which I think is interesting, for sure. So one other thing I, w- I want to talk about b- before we move on to Detour, uh, because what an episode, but uh, Mulder in this episode, like he's not in it much. I think that's a really good yeah. choice. Obviously, he couldn't be in it much because he was off filming, uh, you know, pickups for the movie or whatever he yeah. was doing. But is this a satisfying origin story for how Mulder got involved in this stuff? Um, You know, I feel like, Mulder would have become Mulder no matter what, right? Like, there is no version of Mulder that stays as a criminal profiler and ultimately, you know, becomes an assistant director and a director himself. Like, that is not Mulder in any way. Um, he may he, – he is certainly intellectually capable of it, but I think there is a – again, Samantha has already happened no matter what, and it, it, this is an experience that he is still trying to comprehend and, and doesn't have the language to yet. He is looking for um, – an understanding of what all of this is. Um, yeah, because not finding it as a criminal profile. Yeah, because let's not forget. I mean, when he gets doused in the hallucinogenic gas, like I don't believe they had been talking about aliens, but but he saw aliens, which you know is kind of a interesting choice for the episode because it kind of indicates that he was already primed for that sort of thing. What's interesting is that that so he's mumbling there, here, there, here, and. In one of the exhibits that they show him looking at at the convention is some kind of alien-related thing, and it says they're here or there. So I think that, you know, and he's just like, it's some kind of like, you know, listen to aliens device or something like that, and he plays with it for a moment. Um, so, I, you know, number one, he has the, you know, he, he, he his curiosity is piqued by UFOs already. We see that by him playing with the toy. And that plants the seed for the hallucination about the aliens when he's, you know, in in the warehouse. And again, finally, I think the lone gunmen just are the people who were there and 
You know, I think he recognizes that these guys will be okay to talk to about this. They will understand. They will help me figure out this stuff out. They're not going to immediately dismiss me. You know, they they kind of get it. Right. You know, and I I, I, I think it's a very sweet ending in that way because it's, you know, the again, as silly as, you know, these characters can be, these are people who have seen a certain truth and, you know, again, going in the Lovecraftian sense, you know, seeing too much of the truth drives you mad. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are people who have seen the truth and are able to deal with that truth because they kind of come together in fellowship and all of that. I mean, that that's the, you know, Lovecraft, you know, his characters never have friends that they can de-stress to, you know, they, 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 they go mad because they're on their own. Mulder, we have learned, you know, with Scully is, you know, the show is harped again and again on, you know, Scully is Mulder's anchor. They are there to keep each other sane, and you know, she, he, you know, she will pull him back from the brink and all of that. Um, but the lone gunmen are there for him too. Mulder is very much somebody who is not alone, unlike someone like Max Temkin. Max, yeah, you know, Mulder is not alone. Yeah, I, I think that's right because you could easily see, uh, you know, a road where Mulder is alone towards the beginning of the X Files. You know, because you even get the sense maybe that he was relying on the lone gunman more before he got Scully involved as well. So it's just kind of a nice confluence of events there. Well, which kind of brings, you know, their views towards, you know, Frohiki's views towards Scully a little, you know, better. Because at first he's kind of an asshole to her because, you know, she's the Yoko. But then, you know, but then, you know, you know, especially when they think Mulder's dead, you know. He goes to her friend, recognizes that she does have a certain amount of support to give. Yeah, that's true. I think it's beautiful. Well, um, one last thing uh, before we move on to Detour, which I have to talk about because it involves a uh, television conspiracy that I'm sure Richard knows about. Uh, the, I love conspiracies. The, the, like, I forget the name of it, but it's the the character who wakes up at the end of St. Elsewhere and reveals the whole thing. Was oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the, uh, the detective that Myers is talking to throughout this episode, Detective Munch, uh, was was played by Richard Belzer, of course, and was a character from an NBC show called Homicide Life on the Street that took place in Baltimore. And so when Vince Gilligan got the idea to place this in Baltimore, he wanted to use that character from the television show. And at first, apparently Fox was reticent, but NBC very readily agreed, because why wouldn't they? And so this places the X-Files and Homicide Life on the Street, you know, in the same universe or whatever. And it also links with the St. Elsewhere universe somehow. So if you enjoy bizarre conspiracy theories go check that out well that links it to the wire too then yeah uh i don't know actually because homicide life on the street was written by david simon right yeah but i don't know if any of the characters from either show ever appeared in in the wire you know what character does appear in both shows baltimore that's true Any television show that ever takes place in Baltimore is linked to the X-Files. Which also links it to Hairspray. Now I want Detective Munch to go go show up in Hairspray. (laughs) All right, well, let's move on to Detour. But before we do that, I do want to take an opportunity to let you all know that we do have a Patreon. We rely on your generous support uh, to run the cost for this podcast. If you would like to give, please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. Thank you. All right, let's talk about Detour. Okay, so 
again, going into the X-Files, we know that I have not really watched too much of the X-Files. This is, for the most part, brand new to me. And I never really just got into it. And even... You know, again, I was eighth eighth grade at the time, you know, around this time, eighth, ninth grade. I'm a perfect age to be watching this kind of thing. Well, I remember Detour because it was actually one of the first episodes of The X-Files that I'd ever seen. Oh. And now do you understand why I thought The X-Files was kind of a crappy show? <sighs> kind of. I. This is not a great introduction to the x-files this episode like it is not the it put it this way you know you're 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 in america in the late 90s x-files shit is everywhere there are posters of Mulder and scully everybody's talking about how great this show is oh it's so cool it's so scary like what a show and then you see detour like it, it doesn't really match the hype Yes, I certainly can see that. I mean, I think that this is not like the shining example yeah. of the X-Files at its best. Although I do have a soft spot for this episode. And I think that I don't think it's bad. I, I like this episode. No, it's not a bad episode. But I see what you but... mean. Like, I don't think I think that this episode works if you have previous knowledge of the X-Files. If you know yeah. what the show is capable of doing and you know what this episode is doing. Because in a lot of ways, yeah. this episode is subverting the typical structure of an X-Files procedural episode. And it's also played for laughs in a way that I don't think a lot of people would have expected the X-Files to play an episode like this for laughs. Mm. Because it's it's a very strange episode tonally and this episode always strikes me as the kind of of thing where you start seeing diminishing returns with the monster of the week episodes because yeah you know the 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 creature in this episode is is ridiculous you know the 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 theory that Mulder spins out is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, Ponce Leon, a, I think, was killed by natives. You know, he's not floating around in the Florida woods for 450 years. And that's what they want you to believe. Yeah, that's what they want you to believe. <laughs> like, you know, and of course, like the Florida woods look nothing like the Pacific Northwest. And it's just like, you know, <laughs> there's all these kind of layers upon layers where I think the show is kind of poking fun at itself in a way that if you yeah. got all the hype of the X-Files and you sit down to watch this, you're like, I don't get this show. Why is this? Why is this something everyone is raving about? Because, yeah, like Mulder and Scully are not very, I mean, Scully's not interested in this mystery at all. Uh, the the two FBI agents that are with them like seem like they're coming out of like a carry on movie or something. There's just <laughs> a lot of weirdness about this episode tonally that I don't think would make yeah. any sense if you didn't have much knowledge of the show. Yeah, no, I liked it fine. You know, again, watching it this time, and you know, there are some deep things I'd like to talk about with it. Um, but a lot of that is, you know, a lot of my notes that I've made is coming from, you know, deep character knowledge and stuff like that. Again, as a as an introduction to the X-Files, this was kind of a crappy one. <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 I have the other episode that I watched, you know, around the time is coming up soon. And I think I know which will, one it is, actually. I think you told me before. I, yeah, and I think you understand why I had such a weird 
view of the X-Files. Yeah, the episode, I'm being oblique about the episode, but the episode you're talking about, if it's the one that I think it is, is, is yeah. not very good. So <laughs> that, that, I mean, Detour is like an okay episode. That episode is not good, even if you're familiar with the X-Files. Actually, it might be worse if you're familiar with the X-Files. <laughs> but. Well, what do you what do you think is deep about this episode? You did say that you had some sort of well, more serious thoughts a, about it. There's a moment that I, I mean, I love this other FBI couple. Like they're horrible. And I love the implication that like so last week, you know, was kind of the palate cleanser after again the deep mythology stuff. So let's talk about what's happened to Mulder and Scully. Like, Scully has lied to this, you know, committee, which may or may not have been under oath. You know, Mulder was missing and he's back and no one knows what's going on. And the FBI director killed himself and, you know, and everybody was having guns on each other. And, you know, who knows what's going on? And the response to that is they send Mulder and Scully off to, like, a leadership retreat. Like that, that, that is what has just happened here. And I, yeah, totally. It's, it's ridiculous. But at the I same time, that. like, this is exactly why I don't like serialized television because you can't get this kind of shit. I mean, I know. Like, you could never I know do that this. That, I, I, I don't want to spend week after week about, you know, Oh, gee, how are we dealing with that thing that we just went through? Hey, Scully, your cancer's like, we've forgotten about the cancer already. That's okay. Well, kind of. I mean, she does mention it in this episode, but like... Still, yeah. I, yeah, I'm with you. Like, I just I just think that this episode is so great because it it, <laughs> it it's so... I mean, these two episodes in general so nicely encapsulate the reason why I like episodic television and... Why I think serialized television, while some serialized television is very good, and I think that some shows do it much better than others, like, you just can't get these kind of tonal shifts. And whenever someone tells me that a television show is very tonally consistent, um, I, I know I keep harping on, on Star Trek Discovery, but, like, I remember way back when they had that premiere at, at, at Grauman's Chinese Theater in, in Los Angeles back in September or whatever for, for Star Trek Discovery. And someone tweeted something like, you're about to witness the most totally consistent season of Star Trek ever. And I was like, is that a good thing? And as it turns out, it was not a good thing. Oh, my God. Really? Like that, that, that is what we call damning with faint praise. Like if totally consistent is the best. Pro- like it's like saying like all of my food tasted the same. Right, right. And, and it's just like, yeah, all my food tastes like salt. Great. Thanks. You know, all my food is incredibly salty. This is not good. I don't want this. Like, where's my other flavors, you know? And that's why I think, you know, this episode is like, on the surface, like, what is there really here? I mean, it's just a goofy X-Files episode with a goofy monster of the week. And, you know, the, the episode is very uninterested in the actual mystery. Because at this point, what the show is interested in doing is both poking fun at itself, A, in, in putting Mulder and Scully in increasingly weird positions and, and increasingly weird settings and showing exactly how disinterested they are in the quote unquote normal aspects of the, of the FBI. Yeah. And I, I don't know. It's just like this is not a great episode. I don't think anyone would put yeah. this on a top 10 or a top 20. But I mean, come on. It's done with a lot of care and love. Like they they they. The Monster of the Week episodes are only as good as the monster. They had happened to come up with a crappy monster in this one, but beyond that, every other aspect of the show is singing. Like the again, the, the thing I we love about the show is the care is the characters of Mulder and Scully, 
and you know that part is done impeccably well i mean i think that you know the 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 core of the the that part of the episode for me really is of course towards the end when uh, you know Mulder is, is going into shock and, and scully is is cradling him essentially and yeah you know she's talking about her cancer and how she really didn't want to die and all these kind of things and it's very serious and then Mulder asks her to sing and the, yeah. the song she chooses <laughs> Is Jeremiah was a bullfrog, joy to the world. <laughs> and, you know, as someone who is not tone deaf, but I, I can't carry a tune. Uh, and, I, you know, who knows why? I don't really understand why people can't carry tunes. But I sing like Scully does. And it's not great. And I don't inflict it on <laughs> anyone ever. Um, but there's some things just so charming about it that, like, The X-Files is a network television show. It's never really going to get to i think the place that it would if it had been a mid-2000s uh Mm. cable show where you could really just see this episode collapsing in on itself and Mulder and scully being in that position for 30 minutes or something which i think they kind of want to do but they're just not quite there yet but Uh. it's such a nice moment and that's why people watch this show yeah i mean this episode gave me a lot of callbacks to other episodes that I mean, I, I joked in one of my notes, like, it's been a while since they've been trapped in a life-threatening situation in nature, but, like, I like those moments where it's just, like, they have nothing they can do except huddle and not die for eight hours until it gets dawn. We've seen that a bunch of times, and they really nail those scenes. I mean, this is a – it's a moment for them to just pontificate, and the show – I love the show's aimless pontifications. I really do. Um, It's... There is an art to well-done philosophical babble, and I think the show hits it more than it fails. Um, And also, you know, Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny are really good at delivering those kind of monologues. No, Um, they are, yeah. You know, this reminded me a lot specifically of Quagmire, right? That was the episode Mm -hmm, um, where... You know, they're on that rock, and it turns out they're, you know, a couple feet from shore. This is an actual, you know, threatening situation they're in, but in this episode. But um, what really, where I think a lot of the core of this episode came at the part in the beginning when so Mulder, you know, begs off of this conference because he has to, you know, study the mystery, and he's in the hotel room, and, you know, Scully comes over, and she's brought wine and cheese, and... uh. And she's and when he's like talking about, it, she's like, "Oh, you actually care about the case? Like, I thought you were just trying to get out of the conference." Like, it's a really interesting scene in light of Small Potatoes, in which Foe Mulder comes by with a bottle of wine, and that leads to a moment of intimacy between you know the two of them. And again, obviously, that was not actually Mulder, right, but right. Scully was very open and receptive to that kind of uh, of socialization. Um, you have the two of them offer a conference on how to better communicate with your partner. And, you know, Mulder leaves. And in, in a way, I see this episode in Scully's mind as saying, like, okay, you're right. Like, we are not, you know, seminar people. Like, you know, they're, 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 it's too dorky for the two of them. But, hey, they're, you know, stuck. For, they have a couple of days where they're doing nothing like Having a snack with your, you know, partner is not a bad way to bond and to get communication. Like, I think she's kind of viewing that moment as, you know, that that's her trying to reciprocate that intimacy. And Mulder immediately goes off and is like, oh, no, but the case. And, you know, 
again, Small Potatoes left us with the understanding that, you know, maybe Scully is willing to take an extra step, but Mulder is not yet ready. He's reticent to still. I mean, I th- yeah, I mean, to some degree, I, I, I agree with you. I think that Scully is more willing to be familiar with Mulder, right? And I think yeah. that Mulder... But I don't think it comes from a place on Mulder's part of not wanting to be familiar with Scully. I just think that he's yeah. not someone who is emotionally available in general. And No, it's, it's as a defense mechanism. It, it is, and in yeah. A way, because he... You know, I can see Scully getting frustrated by it because at this point, I think she's proven to him that he can be... You know, he can let down a defense. Again, she's literally cradling him as he's, you know, suffering. So that's, 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 that, that's showing that you can be very, as vulnerable as you can be around me and it'll be okay. Right. Cause, like, but the thing is too with the, with that scene in general is that, you know, it, it certainly played for laughs and I think it is funny because you've got, yeah. but it also speaks to the, to the real core of the fact that they, they can both, they're, they are both on the same wavelength. Like the whole episode is built around the idea that uh, they need to go to this team building thing and they don't, you know, communication skills, whatever. And they obviously don't need that because they are on the same wavelength. And, yeah. you know, where where the core of it really is like, I mean, I just think to that line that Mulder has where, you know, she's cradling him to, to share body heat. <laughs> and the line reading on this on, on David Duchovny's part is so perfect when he says, I don't want to wrestle. And and it's 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 such a small thing. And then of course he asked her to sing. And what song does she choose? The most ridiculous song in the world. <laughs> and you know, yeah, it's supposed to be funny and everything. But at the same time, there is something serious there. Yeah. Where I think that scene is supposed to indicate that they are on the same wavelength. Yeah. No. And that's the listen because there is a part where you know she yells at him and says, you know, yeah, you could be, you could use some work on your communication, like she does. And yes. Mulder could. Mulder could communicate a little bit more. He could be a little less, you know, I'm just going to run off here, Zoom, you know. He could explain things. He could give Skelly a desk. You know, there there, there are some issues, but there is still a... In a way, that's the surface every day. When they are in an actual dangerous situation, which they are very com- very often... Um, that outside stuff gets stripped away and they're really just dealing with the two cores yeah. and you know at at their core they are very strongly bonded and isn't that and well go ahead i was going to say and that in a way i think matters more yes it would be nice if they could you know handle the outside stuff and maybe Mulder ought to work on that a little bit but what's really important is there yeah and i you know the other thing too about that is that it just clicked for me is that you know this episode the the, the monster of the week in this episode is is not very interesting and i i think maybe that's by design i don't know um because it's not the point of the episode but what is interesting about that is the idea that um you know these whatever they are in the woods the camouflage men are, are you know he calls it a, a primitive culling technique where they're splitting these people up and it it works and it's kind of part of the subtext of the episode Ooh. you know where where it's it's really focusing on this idea that you you have to sort of separate these people to to get them to be weaker and of course Mulder and Scully uh, find each other again very easily and and what gets them out of the situation is their willingness to be close to each other and and that's a nice message i think and i think it's you know this episode is is like again it's not the best episode in the world but 
I think it's, it's got a lot of heart. It's got a lot of heart, and I, I, cool. I and I also think it's smarter than than a lot of people give it yeah. credit for. Frankly, no, no. Again, this is all stuff that, like I said, all of this is stuff that we've been watching the past four and changed seasons of the X Files, so we have this all in our heads. You know, as as just a first episode to watch, it was not that good. I I I wish it had been a different episode that I'd seen first. Yeah, I, I can see that. And and I mean, you know, the other thing, too, that... Because, and I have to say, like, watching this series chronologically and watching every episode has been a weird epi- weird way to get into this series, too. Like, I don't know. I think it's really necessary for this show more than, you know, a lot of other shows, though. I mean, I, I, I think that you can watch a lot of episodic shows in any kind of particular order and it's not going to matter that much but with the x-files you you can do that but the show changed and grew so much over the course of its nine original seasons that it it really does benefit from watching those changes and and, and frankly growing i think with the show this is an episode that could not have been done before like the fifth or fourth the fourth or fifth season i think and and also, I mean, the the final point I'll make about about Detour, and, and the final point I'll make about the X Files in general is that you know, next week is also like not any standard Monster of the Week episodes, and you're looking at a, a season that's only twenty episodes long. It's short yeah. also because of the movie they they started production late. I mean, the, the show didn't come back until November, uh, which is late for the show, of course, and they only did twenty episodes. And Mulder and Scully weren't in one because, well, Mulder was in one briefly, Unusual Suspects, because they had to go back and do some stuff for the movie. Yeah. And what you're looking at is a show that is increasingly uninterested in the procedural aspects of it. And, you know, the the reason why people got into the show is is not the reason why people are watching it now. And I think that's fascinating that the show can so radically change its storytelling uh, uh it's storytelling methods and, and people were, were just like all with it. They were on for the ride. Yeah. Because I, 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 I think there's a mount of for this again, I keep saying like, this wasn't a good episode just to what start with. This wasn't a, they don't care. Like they assume they are not really worried about onboarding new, new, new viewers at this point. I think, I mean, certainly they love to have them. That's great. But I think they know that they've got an audience who watches the X-Files every week, a fairly large audience who watches the X-Files every week. And so yeah, 23 they're gonna be million on, they, people watch this episode. Yeah, exactly. And these are 3 million people who know by now. Tw- listen, 23 million. 23 million. Jesus. Oh, my God. It's TV now is ridiculous. But because um, 3 million sounded like a massive hit to me still. <laughs> um <laughs> you've got 23 million people every week again who know that x-files is going to throw some weird curveballs to you and like that's why they're there and you know i think that's kind of cool like again this is a really confident show yeah yeah absolutely it is and i i, I it's only going to get better and then it starts it hasn't gotten cocky yet i know it's going to get cocky but right now it's just like, yeah, we're the fucking X Files. Like we can do this stuff. Oh, you know something? Dryads. There you go. Yeah, I mean, really. And they're made by Ponce de Leon. He found the fountain <laughs> of youth. 
I mean, if you got yeah, he did. If you kind of look at like a chart of the X Files, like over the seasons, it's like probably like the first five, and then the movie, and then it kind of plateaus in the sixth and seventh, and then it starts to go down a little bit. But it's always like I think that like it, it gets a little boring sometimes, but even the last couple seasons, which I think are, are maligned unfairly, uh, have some interesting stuff to them. And I, I, I think that if they had like had the courage of their convictions and what they were doing in the last mm. couple seasons, that the show would have been, the show would have worked a lot better, but we'll talk about that when we get there. All right. Well, I think that's it for this episode of the podcast. If you have any thoughts on either of these episodes, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at tuninginshow.com. As I said earlier, you can check out our Patreon if you would like to give us some financial support, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. It also supports our other podcast, Trekabout. We release an episode this week on the Voyager episodes, the Omega Directive, and Unforgettable. You can also check out our special patron episodes we do each and every month for people that give us $5 a month or more. The one that we did for March was on uh, something that people have been requesting us to cover for a long time, and we finally did it. Babylon 5's pilot, The Gathering. Oh. So if you want to know what oh we, my god, I know. So if you want to know what we thought of that, you have to give us five dollars a month or more. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Tuning in show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an iTunes Apple Podcast review for this podcast. All right, next week we're going to be talking about the episodes "The Postmodern Prometheus" and "Christmas Carol." Mac, why do you?